Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. I thought that our uh, conversation, our discussion last week, I very much enjoyed that as we talked about the life of the PK. And there were some interesting references made in class about some of the PKs that we actually, you know what I'm talking about when I see PK? PK? Yeah, police, policemen's kids, yeah. <laughs> and we just kind of were talking about that a little bit in terms of, and, and I think this is probably generally true, is that if you, have, if you had parents that are high profile in a public way, that it's almost as if, if you have like more than one kid or if you just have one kid, the chances of that child finding a way to bring notoriety to your family uh, is quite high, and it will be done in the way that fits the occupation or the profession publicly of the parent. So I was telling somebody after class that uh, one of my friends in high school was the uh, fire chief's son. Yeah, I guess what happened to him? Yeah, yeah, he was playing with fire one time, and he, he kind of burned himself, and he had to go to the emergency room, and yeah, so it was, it was just sort of like that. And, and so we talked a little bit about last, just last week about how that works for, uh, for PKs. So anyway, there were some interesting references. Does anyone today want to make a confession of sin or anything like that? that uh, no, there would be no, no mention of that, I suppose. Yes. No, no, I'll confess my sister's sins. Do what? My sister's sins. Oh, your sister, you want to mention your sister's sins? Yeah. Well, see, I was the oldest child, so therefore, you know, I was, you know. And maybe you still are. Really, yeah. I am still. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, of course, I was the good one. You were the good one? Yes. So my sister comes along now when you're the second child, you know, you are, you're open to rebellion. That's right. And so she yes. has to be the bad one. I got to be the good one. So and then did my you ever? came along and he became the pastor. <laughs> so he was, he d- he did the redemption for your sister. Yeah, that's that's how that worked. Yeah, you did. Yeah. So did, were you ever bad? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> you mean I mean like when you went away to school? No, no. See, she, I was I was I was a pretty um, a rule keeper. So you've been the good child the whole time in your life. Oh my gosh. Geez. Well, nobody ever found out about anything naughty I did because I was in charge, you know. So, so, so see, that's why, that's why I left Fort Worth and went away to school. And so then I had that opportunity to do that. So the Concordias were an excellent environment for me to sort of, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm going to tell off on this. Don't about this. Oh, PK? He's a PK. Second, there were six kids. We had a family reunion last year, and one of the grandkids said, which of you got in trouble the most? And every eye turned to him. Second kid. Second kid. Yeah, that's it. No, that's it. That's right. See, I'm, I'm the oldest in my family, and... and uh, and so I became the pastor. And so when I became the pastor, nobody else in the family had to become the pastor. And so I'm actually the oldest of 45 grandchildren on my mom's side of the family. And I, my, both, you know, my, my grandfathers were pastors, both of them, on both sides. I've got all, most of my uncles were pastors, or at least went through the seminary. And most of my aunts married pastors. So again, let's see, what am I going to do with my life when I get to be? And so that was kind of that thing. I grew I always grew up around people saying, we think you will make a great pastor. We think you'll make a great pastor. And when you grow up with that and you, I think you would make a great pastor. I think you'll have to join another church and you might give that some thought actually. So. But anyway, uh, anyway, that's uh, that. That's somehow sometimes how it is. And and so I was telling somebody after class that because of that, because there was such a strong family uh, influence for me, it did. It took me a long time to figure out if I was being a pastor because I was trying to please my family or you know just living under that sort of umbrella, or was I doing it because I felt that 
this was what I was supposed to do and God was calling me. So it took me about 10 or 15 years to figure that out. And I finally figured that out. So there you go. It was all about my family. Yeah. So, yeah. Somebody else had their hand. Yeah. How does Samantha take all of this in stride or? She loves it. She just, Samantha just lives for this totally. No, you know, uh, I think that one of the things that is happening generationally is that when, for example, when my parents were, grew up in the church and their families being church workers, there was this, and, and I, I resonate with what Doris had said last, last, last week, is there was this kind of fear that church worker families had about their kids at, in terms of that the, the parent would be judged on the basis of how the kids turned out. So if the kids were, you know, kind of like wild, well, then that would be sort of, oh, what kind of pastor are you? You can't even control your own kids. Or if the kids never came to church, what's the matter with you? That, you know, there was, that, there was a real judgmental attitude that was directed toward, toward the families. And so the families sort of lived in the fear of that. You know, above all, don't bring shame to the family name. That was, that was kind of always there. Uh, for us, even if it wasn't uh, explicitly stated, but in many cases it was explicitly stated. I think what's happening now is to some degree that clergy families or church worker families have, have kind of drifted away from that a little bit and are not putting as much pressure on their own kids to conform to a certain standard or to a certain way of being. In some cases, maybe that's gone too far. Okay, that, that certainly can be the case. But it's, I think it's more fair now than it used to be. And to some degree, if the parent can handle it better, then they're not going to bring pressure on their kid to be a certain way in order to uh, please the church people. And so uh, that's, but that's probably true in all high-profile situations. I just can relate to the clergy profile part because that's, that's been my life, been my world. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, so we had a good time with that. That was really, uh, really an intriguing conversation. All right, well, let's get into our lesson then for today. We're, uh, we're working through John, uh, John 1, and uh, so now what we're going to run into or what we're going to be talking about is the interaction that John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin, and the forerunner of the Christ, if you will, the interaction that John has with, uh, with Jesus. So as the next day he, and that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel." And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God." All right, so, so John sees Jesus coming toward him. That's kind of interesting little moment there, which we would, we would surmise that John is inspired by the Holy Spirit in that moment to know who Jesus was, even though he did not know who Jesus was. And it's kind of an interesting thing. It's like, well, come on, it's your first cousin. Don't you know your first cousin? Well, you know, maybe that had been so many years, see, since they had crossed paths with each other, that maybe that was not, that's not, that would be not the case. So he sees Jesus coming toward him and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's very intentional about using that phrase, Lamb of God, because he uses it a couple of different places, as we'll see a little bit later on in the reading. So by using that terminology of Lamb of God, that is a direct connection to an Old Testament reference in Leviticus, and then a... a uh, a ritual that the people of God went through on, uh, on the Day of Atonement. So just looking at the notes here. The Lamb of God recalls the sacrifice of a lamb at the temple every day for the people. 
It also recalls a, a very significant moment in the history of Israel going all the way back to the Exodus. How, in what way was the lamb significant? Passover. Yeah, the Passover. And then in particular, the sacrifice of that lamb and the smearing of the blood, right, on the doorposts and on the, on the uh, uh, window frame in order that the angel of death would then pass over. It also was contrasted with the role of the scapegoat, who was an actual goat. Okay, so if you ever wonder where did that phrase come from, all right, is that who on the day of atonement would symbolically bear the sin of the people and then would be driven away into the wilderness. And that was a, a ritual that they would exercise in order to sort of say that now we're placing all of our sin on this goat. We symbolically beat the goat. This could not have been an enjoyable time for the goat. And then put, drive that goat out into the wilderness as a way of saying that the sin of the people is no more in front of us. And so it recalls then the words of Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah who would come. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So we get this, see this reference to Jesus in terms of from, from, uh, from John the Baptist as he's, he's already by the inspiration of the Spirit is indicating this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus' uh, ministry and life would be about. So that's when John then says, I came baptizing with water. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So we, we remember again that what was the purpose that John did his baptizing because he did. We saw that last week. He was baptizing and the Jews came to him and said, you know, hey, why are you baptizing? Who are you? All right. So what is John's purpose in baptizing people into, into that relationship with him? What was the purpose? Yeah, Bob? Yeah, repentance. Yeah, repentance. So, so there was this need that people had, which many of them did not think they needed, Right. And by, by virtue of the fact that they were already Jewish people, they were already chosen people, why should we, uh, uh, why should we uh, repent? We don't need to do that. But John was, was preparing people for the fact that the Messiah would come. And then he is saying about the Messiah that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's kind of interesting and I think helpful that um, today's readings in the worship service made reference to that. Did you catch that? Yeah, what was, what, so when he says he who will be baptizing with the Holy Spirit, what's he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about what we're going to celebrate next week, right? Because that the reference there is that, that the, the, they're being baptized with the Holy Spirit, but it, it is in fact Jesus who is doing the baptizing at, uh, at Pentecost. So then John says, it says, John bore witness, and then he says himself, I have seen and, and bear witness. So this idea of being a witness is, and we talked pretty, pretty extensively about that, is in terms of how do you go about being that witness and offering that witness? You sort of get the sense here with John's words that it almost has a legal connotation, almost as if it would be the way you would do it in court. You would say, I do solemnly swear, you know, et cetera. You sort of get that sense here that he is saying this is the absolute truth. And the truth is, he didn't know Jesus face to face. He did not know. But when Jesus came to be baptized, then he knew. And how he knew was, was that he heard the voice from heaven say, what? This is my son, yes, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then the presence of what came down? The dove, which was, we know, the Holy Spirit, or we're told that it was the Holy Spirit, came down and it remained on him. Now, I think that's an interesting little detail that's included here in, uh, in, in, uh, in the verses, that it was the, the, the uh, Spirit would descend and remain. Why is that important? It's just a little detail, but what, why does that matter? Doves were common in those days. So would it have not been unheard of that a dove's flying around, it's flying around, and it descends, and then it flies off? But what does this say? 
It stayed. It remained. Okay? And so that was going to be the sign that this was indeed the Lamb of God. This baptism was more special than the other baptisms. Yeah? Yeah, if you switch uh, to a different gospel, John, well, uh, yes, Mary, Mary, when she told her cousin she was pregnant, yeah. John leaped in her womb. Yes. So he didn't see her and still knew who he was. That's right. But see, the Holy Spirit would have moved that to have occurred, absolutely. So you have these, this Spirit-filled guy that already in the womb is already... You can tell that was already set up where he, when he saw him coming, he already had that precursor. Yeah, that here it is. There's, there's, something, there's something extra, something special there. All right? And so that's the reminder again. Now, now thinking that from this perspective... If John is baptizing for the purpose of uh, bringing the people to repentance, and Jesus is baptized by John, Jesus doesn't need repentance. So why is Jesus being baptized in the first place? Show obedience. Could be obedience, yeah, I guess. I mean, there was some sort of... um, designation there, or or some sort of, uh, I don't want to say command... But what, think about it what, in terms of what, what is the result of Jesus' baptism for us? Example was set for us. Pardon? There is an example There is an example there, uh, but I think what I'm kind of trying to kind of think, have you think about a little bit is that why is it important that Jesus totally identifies with us? Because the command is for us to be baptized, right? And also for us to be involved in what? Baptizing, as, uh, in terms of the church, to be baptizing. You know, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing. All right, so that baptizing is what we're supposed to be doing. But in terms of Jesus' baptism, it's the way that he then is, is that total human nature of him is that he's totally identifying with us. I am human as you are human. And now, as I am human and you are human, I am what? I'm going out into the world to be with humans and to bring humans not only to a sense of repentance, but also to a sense of relationship, of forgiveness, and all the, uh, the blessings that went with that. Okay, with me so far? Tracking? All right, very good. All right, so, the, so one of the aspects of bear witness is to give some thought to how do you do that, and in what way might we be able to do that? Yes. He had, had he revealed himself as the Son of God yet when he was baptized? He had not. Or if he was, he was just a simple Jew doing what the others are doing, and isn't that what we're supposed to be people where they are? That's correct. Maybe that was he, was, he was among the throngs. And so that's why God told John to watch for the dove, and to watch for the dove that would remain. And then that would be the signal, I suppose, you could use that word, or the sign that this is who that is. And I'm guessing that when this happened and the voice from heaven came down, I think probably John would have said, okay, I think this is who this is. I mean, that would have been a pretty obvious, yeah, but there's throngs of people, throngs of people, all right? And it would be only by the, by, the, by the Spirit indicating to him this is who Jesus is that uh, he would have recognized him in the first place. And what's interesting about it is that after the baptism, what does Jesus do? He goes out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, so he doesn't really hang around. And John goes about doing his baptizing, and Jesus goes about doing his ministry, and you don't really get this sense that there would have been some fellowship with them or anything like that. It just, that was two different missions, two different, you know, ministries, and each one then went about doing the ministry they were called to do. Okay? Yeah. Is that also the case where it changed when Jesus was baptized, it's went from repentance to being received in the Holy Spirit? Because he always has to be, um, for good reason, he's first showing us everything, firstborn. Yeah. Or he's the first to receive the Holy Spirit during baptism, which we follow for. Yeah, and the other beautiful thing about it, and I know I've mentioned this a bunch of times, is that the very words that God said of Jesus in his baptism are now the words that Jesus says to us in our baptism. See, that's why it's such a big deal that in terms of the baptism, yeah, there's the obedience side of it and there's all that, but but there's a there's a deeper 
affirmation that you receive in baptism. And whether you receive it as an adult or a young person or an, a baby, okay, pre-verbal, you, you receive that affirmation of, no, of, of knowing and being known that you're known by God. And that comes with those words, you are my child whom I love, with you are, I am well pleased. That this idea that we are God's beloved, yes, we, everybody is God's beloved, but, but in the moment of baptism, when the water hits the, hits the forehead or, or your whole body, depending on how you're baptized, what happens is there's, that, there's a tangibility to that. There's a, there's a, that's a tangible moment when it's like sealed in you that you are God's beloved. And Lord knows we need to hear that all the time because for most people, our experience in life is anything but that. Our experience in life is that you are not God's beloved. You are not anybody's beloved unless it's what you have you done for me lately. If you do good, if you're productive, if you achieve, if you make the grade, if you get trophies, if you are a nice person, if all those things, well, then you're beloved. That's, what, that's how the world works. But the way God works is you are because I love you and because I've called you to be my own. And I thought enough of you to send my only son to die for you, rise again, and call you home to be in heaven with me. And you didn't do a thing to earn it, as if you could. See, that, that's so radical. There, there isn't anything in the world like that. And so that's where the, 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 the notion of the idea that we are the beneficiaries of that, and so we have the opportunity to, to bear witness to that. And that's, what, that, that's where the next place where we go is that it, bearing witness to that means that we have the opportunity to share with a world that doesn't know that or maybe marginalizes it in some way or maybe is hostile to it in some sense. We have the opportunity to bear witness to that in terms of how that has benefited us and the special thing that it is. Okay? So that's where I want to take you, which is to the next thing. Yours is in black and white. I'm the teacher, so I got to be in color. Okay? <laughs> But actually, ironic, did you see this? Did you all see this, gra this graphic? It was in your latest issue of the Lutheran Witness. Now, who is not reading their Lutheran Witness? Okay, all right, yes. And did you see it? Did you all see it? Oh, well, okay, so much for that. Well, anyway, that's where it is, all right? And it's on the page that is dedicated to the, uh, to the Lutheran... Uh, to, to Lutheran Hour Ministries. I saw this and I thought, this is really good. Because one of the things we've been talking about is how do you go about meeting people where they are? And then how do you recognize that where people are is merely the starting point? It's not the ending point. And so when you bear witness, when you're, when you're offering the gospel or when you're offering the good news of Jesus to someone, I think the difficulty of it is, is knowing where that other person is in terms of their receptivity. And I know, I mean, maybe you've experienced this, I know I have, is the fear that you're going to deliver something to people that's, that they don't want to hear. And if they don't want to hear it, then there's going to be some form of rejection or some sort of pushback or some sort of, some sort of sense of, well, thank you very much, but I, that's not for me. And then we don't know what to do with that. And so if we're a little bit afraid of that happening, maybe we're afraid we'll offend them, whatever it might be. They won't be my friend anymore. I don't get invited to the parties. You know, whatever is the ramification of that causes us then to give into that fear a little bit, and then we, may, we maybe don't do it. So when I was looking at this chart, it, it occurred to me that it really does give a very nice uh, breakdown, if you will, of understanding that based on where people are and how receptive they are to you, and then therefore to the gospel, you tailor what you say or the approach that you take based on where they are. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you look at that bottom line there, see where it says unreceptive, receptive, and seeking. Okay, that's kind of the, the, uh, the bottom foundation of kind of the normal curve here, if you want to think of it as a normal curve. All right, so when people are unreceptive 
and or even hostile. All right. And some people are. Some people get very offended at the idea that you would presume that they need salvation from you. All right. So whatever is the range of their unreceptivity. All right. So then what do you what is the goal? You go to the top of the curve. The goal is simply to gain a hearing. That's all that's all you're really trying to do. And the way that you can go about doing that is, is that you can chat about life in a way that maybe builds trust. You can relate to the person. You know, I think last week when we talked about the role of kindness, I think that that kind of fits in here, right? Is that the person may not be unreceptive. It's just that you may not know. It may be somebody who is your neighbor. It might be somebody that you encounter someplace, just maybe a one-shot deal. So you don't even know. Well, when you don't know, the idea here is that at least you are being considerate. At least we're being cordial. At least we're not being standoffish. We're not sort of acting in an arrogant way as if we don't want to give somebody the time of day. That's what this is talking about. Does that make sense? So then if someone is receptive, then you're, you're tailoring that, your, your approach a little bit differently. Now, if someone's receptive to hearing the good news, then you want to be able to give them the good news, right? And so how would you do that? You could share Jesus, how Jesus is at work in your life and the best, the blessings and the benefit that that would be for you. You could also connect Jesus to daily life in terms of a Bible or a devotional kind of thing, that kind of thing. There, that's a way to do that. See, now, can you see where that wouldn't work with somebody who's unreceptive? See, because if somebody's unreceptive, we want to somehow respect that because if you respect that, then you're also respecting the person. So part of it is, is how do you, I earn your respect, which then will add to the trust, which then opens the possibility of the door for receptivity. And then the last one, and I, I love the fact that they put this last one in there, the seeking, because actually I think there are more people seeking than we think. I think that sometimes what comes across, at least for a lot of us that grew up in the church, what comes across as being unreceptive is actually seeking. But it might be seeking in a way that we're not accustomed to. Seeking in the form of challenging something, right? Seeking in the form of saying something outrageous. Seeking in the form of uh, something that sounds rejecting, it sounds rebellious or that, or somebody just says, well, that's it. I'm done with the church. I'm done with God because here's what happened in life. Okay. See what would happen if, if in hearing that we took that as this is a person who's seeking as opposed to this is a person who is rejecting or who is unreceptive. Does that, does that resonate with you at all? I mean that that's, uh, so I love the fact that they put that in there. So so if, if seeking is part of it, and, may, and sometimes maybe there's a little guesswork, you know, hoping which one it is, but then the goal is to guide that person toward faith in terms of making sense of what's going on in life around them, all right? And so what do you do? You explore questions about faith and, and encouraging the search, okay? See, encouraging the search, that's a, that's a different gig. And then clarifying the, uh, the costs and rewards of following Jesus as a preparation for faith. See, these are, really, these are really pretty deep questions. These are pretty significant questions that I think more people than we think are asking those questions. And I particularly think that it's people who are uh, kind of in that age group of that we call millennial or Gen X, whatever that might be. I think there's a lot more of that going on than there is just an outright rejection of, I don't want anything to do with organized religion. I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't, I don't even believe in God anymore. I'm agnostic or atheist or whatever the label is. It's not that I'm not going to believe that. It's that I'm going to take that as that's where that person's starting point is. That's how I'm going to look at it. Yeah, Phil. So, 
I like just everything you were saying really resonated with me because I would I'm still in that like seeking point. Mm -hmm. And one one example that really stood out for me personally was I was part I, I'm part of a uh, uh, a Facebook faith group where we do some deep conversations and some of it's a little edgy so to speak. Edgy and, and, and I'm and, and edgy and so it's hard for me to like fully explain it, but. When no, no, I know what edgy is. Yeah, I do. Because I've had conversations with you, and I know what edgy is. <laughs> Whenever you're talking about uh, saying something outrageous and yes. whatnot, Whenever there was a topic on this Facebook group that came out uh, uh, on uh, uh, the topic of abortion, for example, yeah. I took the contrarian view just because I like to stoke discussion. I don't like to be an instigator or anything like that, but I like to gain... Come on, Phil, we know. <laughs> well, so there was a point where I was really struggling with this. Yeah. In, in turn, like, I, I, I feel like I'm deeper in my faith you know, regarding the, the subject of abortion, yeah. but uh, the more that I researched, the more I was getting confused and struggling with the word, going back into the Old Testament of, I think it's uh, the test of the adulterer's wife, mm -hmm. um, where... On first glance, people would point at that scripture and say, see, look, this is God condoning abortion. Yeah. And I had been struggling so much with that passage, and I would bring that up constantly with this group. And every time I would try and take this contrarian point of view, I would always be be hit back with, oh, you just like, you, you love to kill babies. You would rather just right. kill babies. And, and I was just hitting a, a brick wall. I'm like, no, I'm trying to gain a better understanding. Yes. And I just kept pursuing, pursuing, trying to get this understanding. And then finally, someone broke through, and it, they really were able to point me in the right direction and say, well, it's, if, you, if you go back to what the Hebrew words are for those specific actions, you know, we, and they cited the sources. It's great. It was yeah. fantastic. It was, it was mind-blowing. Yeah. And, and they helped me see that, you know, the, the words that they're using in that passage, if you go back further when there's a, uh, a, 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 a I can't remember if it's in Levit Leviticus or where else, uh -huh. there is a uh, topic of if two men are in a quarrel, whatever, and a bystander who's pregnant, you know, miscarries, yes. you know, because of, you know, an out, like a fight or yeah. whatever. You know, the, the Hebrew words for that are not the same in that test of, uh, of the adulterer's wife. Right. And, like, when, when they finally, like, were able to help me understand that, I mean, like, I'm getting emotional right now. Yeah, you're kind of excited right now, Phil. Yeah, this is really like, good. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that, that type of understanding. Sure. And that's, so when you think about that form of seeking... To the contrarian view, as an example, um, the engaging with a conversation, in this case online, okay? Um, think, about, think about how much time that takes. Now, I, I say that from that perspective, not saying that, that, you know, count the minutes and then you can decide if you want to do it or not, but just realize that this is a conversation that takes place over time and if you're someone who wants quick answers and quick results and let's hurry up and, and get the check mark by your name so that we'll know you're in heaven and we look good, um, that, isn't, that ain't going to work. That, does, that doesn't work. There probably was a day and age maybe when it did, but that isn't now, okay? And so, see, that's the, I think what we're talking about here is that if your mindset as the one bearing witness— Okay, is that you want to engage, then you're probably also going to have to have your tolerance of discomfort tweaked. Because what that means is that that, seek, that form of seeking will take you into heresy. It will take you into things that are so outrageous that we would say, oh, no, I could never even admit that. I could never even say that. Well, guess what? That's where, if you're going to follow conversations like that, that's where they go. And that's why it's so critical as the one bearing the witness to have a pretty good working knowledge of the scriptures. Because you, that way you, uh, you won't lose your grounding. 
See, you'll still be grounded and you'll still know, okay, here's what the scriptures talk about. Here's what, here's what my belief is. Yes, it will get dinged up. Yes, it may cause me to think to myself, oh, wow, you know, I didn't even think about it that way before. And you'll be tested in your own faith. But staying grounded and staying in the word and staying in, in, in like a Bible study or something like that is part of what enables you to go there, but not be uh, seduced by it, not be uh, driven away from it. And I think that's one of the things I'm hearing you say, Phil, is that as a grounded person, you can engage in that without, being, without having it draw you away uh, from your faith. Well, dur- during that whole exchange, though, I was really yes. thinking about leaving that group. Yes. <laughs> it really hot. Well, it can. It can. Yeah, it certainly can. And that would be a decision to make. I mean, obviously, there, there, there might be some, some groups under the auspices of seeking are really actually rejecting. That's absolutely possible. Okay? And you have to make that determination. Yeah. Carl. Yesterday, I had a... An, 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 an opportunity. Mm-hmm. We were at a soccer soccer match watching my grandson. Yeah. And I met one of the, the newer fathers. And we were talking about our backgrounds and everything. And he mentioned he, he'd gone to San Jose State for college. Uh-huh. I said, oh, gosh. I said, you know, that's where, where, where the fellow that brought me to really know Jesus came from. Oh. He said, oh. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, you really changed my life. And then he said, you know, if you live in a good life, you're, you're really going to do well, you know, in that regard. And I said, no, it's got nothing to do with what you do. It's what God did. Yeah. I said, yeah, very simply, I just said, it's what God did. Jesus yeah. died for our sins, and God says, here's the gift. Yeah. We all have eternal life. Sure. Here's the gift. Open it up and use it. He said, you know, if you don't open it up, it, it, won't, it doesn't do any good, does it? Yeah. And that was it. Yeah, that, that was, was it. it. And then yes. I thought about your comment immediately that says, the Holy Spirit takes over and mm-hmm. gave, gave me that opportunity yeah. and takes over from there. And your eyes were open to it. Yeah. See, that's the thing I think is it, it, there's a little bit of a mindset aspect to that in terms of we, the, me, the Christian. And me, the Christian would be that I have that moment of like, oh, wow, uh, the opportunity presented itself and it wasn't even like you were looking for it. Yeah. So, yeah. so in regard to this chart, there's yeah. a piece that's missing and that is the misconception. Mm-hmm. Oh, a whole mess people. Oh, there's huge. I was one of them. Yeah. I was 32. That yeah. said it's worse. Sure, sure. And some of it is misconception even among people that grew up in the church. And, and not even necessarily that, maybe another church, but even this church. I mean, the capacity that we all have to take what we've learned and then superimpose our own idea of it on top of that and that, and then completely sort of wiping out or at least changing the very thing that we learned is so, our capacity to do that is so great. So it's always a question of uh, what, do you, what do you do with that? And when the opportunity is there, you do it. And, and how much of the soccer match did you guys miss then as a result of this? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, because it probably took what? Two minutes. Yeah, we were warming up to be getting ready. Oh yeah, perfect time. I had not met, met the fellow. And we yeah. Had a nice little opening discussion. There you go. We talked for about yeah. ten minutes. And you may never out. see him again, or you might. Yeah. And I won't, I won't need to bring that up. Yeah. And you won't have to. He might. He might. And if he does, then there's a conversation, another part of the conversation. Yeah. Excellent. Great. Anybody else? Yeah. That I read the book by Nabil Qureshi recently, Seeking Heart on Finding Jesus, yeah. and talked about an illustration of this being a years-long process. Yes. It's a guy he met in college, and they were mm-hmm. friends, and yeah. different activities yeah. together, and it was years before. Yes. And sometimes in our impatience, we conclude that nothing is happening. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't always just like come down and tongues of fire on people's heads. And then you can see that actually conversion has happened. You know, it just doesn't work that way for in some cases. And so in some cases you might be doing seed planting for years and you, st- you put the seed in the ground and you think nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Boy, what a failure I am at seed planting. I mean, that's kind of what we do. 
And then years later, you find out that somebody else came along and helped to nurture that seed and to sort of cultivate that ground and to prune those things. And you find out later, and, and as Pastor Coleman is often fond of saying, we'll have that experience in heaven. Well, there'll be people in heaven that will say, hey, and we'll go, wow, how'd you get here? You know, I mean... <laughs> And then people will look at us and say, well, how'd you get here? You know, sort of, sort of moment. All right. But it will be like that. It'll be like that. And it's sort of this idea that how, that how they came to the path of faith was through that you had something to do with it. And again, it's the Holy Spirit. I know it's Jesus. It's God. It's all that. But, but, but a human is transmitting, it's verbalizing, is, is doing some of that work. And, and that's, the, that's the whole key here, right? The Holy Spirit, he's the one that made that plant grow. There's no question. But somebody had to stick it in the ground, right? Somebody had to pull the weeds. Somebody had to get the rocks out of the way. It's all that kind of stuff. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So anyway, I just thought this was interesting. So I showed this to Pastor Coleman and he said, where'd you get that? So, you all are following his example, okay? I said, don't you ever read the Luther Witness? This is where it was when the Luther went. So, anyway, he thought that was pretty cool. He said, make a copy of it for me, and he'll see it. he said, I'd look at it. And so, my thought is that you can actually order these in terms of car, cars. And I thought, and I said, well, I'd like to just order like 200 of them, for, you know, give it one to everybody in the class. And uh, he thought that was a good idea, so that's what we're going to do. So pretty good, huh? Yeah, pretty good. And uh, uh, so it, it's just, again, it's a nice visual way of kind of making sense of how do I discern where somebody is. See, because if they're not receptive, then they don't want that. And if you try to give something to somebody and they don't want it, that will make it worse. And then that'll be a bad experience and then you'll conclude, well, I'm never doing that again, you know, and, and it's just that we misread the receptivity is all it was, okay? So anyway, I thought that would be really fun to, fun to do. So whenever, whenever that comes, I don't know when that's going to come. All right, so now let's go to John 1, 35 to 51, or at least as far as we get in that, okay? So the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Okay, now he knows who Jesus is. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Pivotal question. All right, so first little point here is, notice John does not stop them from following Jesus. John, does, John, he knows his role, doesn't he? He knows that he is the one to prepare the way for the Savior. He is not, in fact, the Savior. John has no ego here. John is not collecting disciples. He's not measuring his own worth on the basis of how many followers he has, how many likes he gets, how many Instagram following he has, all right? He's not, he, his, his sense of who he is and the worth and value that he has as an individual and certainly as a minister is not tied into church attendance. It's not tied into how many people. And so when, when Jesus comes along and John says, behold, the Lamb of God, his two disciples turn do an about face and they begin to follow Jesus and John is okay with that. So then Jesus turns and says and asks them the pivotal question, what are you seeking? Now why does he ask that? To let them verbalize. To let them verbalize, okay, to let them give some thought to, well, what what are we seeking? But why is it important to know what somebody's looking for? See, why don't you just say, well, I already know what you're looking for. I already know what you're seeking, and I know what you need. You need the Bible, and you need God's Word, and you need church, and you need communion, and you need a pastor in your life, and you need all those things. Why don't I just do that? Because I know that's what people need, right? 
Don't we know that? Well, then why don't we just say it that way? I know what you need. And say, I know what you're seeking. Dennis, I know what you're seeking. Why, do we, why, would we, why is it important to ask the question instead of state what you already know? Yes, Mary Jane? You can maybe help them find it. Say that again. And help them find it. Help them find what? Whatever they're seeking. So I would need to know what they're seeking. Okay, that's a good point. All right, what else? Yeah, Mark? I think it's like you said, a starting point. You see where they're at. Where's, where's their baseline? Where, where are they starting yeah. from? Yeah, yeah. See, how are you going to know, how are you going to cherish people enough if you don't start them where they are? See, doesn't it sort of suggest a uh, sort of little attitude if you sort of say, well, I already know what you need. You don't even have to tell me. I know what you need. It says right here in the Bible and my Luther small catechism. Here's what you need, right? I mean, it may be true. I may be 100% accurate. But my attitude is going to do what? Turn them off. It's going to shut the door and perhaps turn someone who is seeking into someone who's unreceptive just simply because I'm coming across in that sort of know-it-all sort of way. Okay, we got a few hands up. Yeah. Did you have well, any they need to acknowledge it for themselves. They need to understand where they are, where their heart is, because you can't really tell somebody else, okay, this is what you need to do. Well, they need to understand themselves what they need to do, where their heart is, what direction they need to go in. I mean, you can tell people that are dealing with, you know, all kinds of things, alcoholism, drugs, all kinds of stuff. Well, you need to do this. Well, that might be true, but they need to take hold of it themselves, acknowledge it themselves, and take the first steps on their own also. Mm -hmm. So how many of you like somebody telling you what you need to do? And using those exact words. See, what is that? What does your heart do or what does your brain do when you hear somebody do that? Switch off. Yeah, put the wall up, right? Even if what they say is true and probably is, it probably is. There's just something about that, that wording or whatever, the attitude of, you know, uh, well, you know, what you need to do is, Right. And I know for myself, when I hear that, I get instantly annoyed, just instantly. It's almost like a, uh, it's like a, uh, almost unconscious kind of, you know, reaction. All right. And so, yeah, okay, bad on me to do that, but it still is, that's what happens. So it's a little bit more of the, of the power of something if, if it's kind of that person's idea, so to speak. And again, what you're doing is you're respecting that person's starting point. See, Jesus always took people where they were and he accepted them as they were. He just didn't leave them where they were. Jesus took people where they were and took them to a different level. That's what he did. And I think sometimes the world today gets all confused about what loving somebody is and what accepting somebody is. And the assumption is, is that my accepting you as you are means that there is no evolving of you or there's no, nothing in terms of the growth of our relationship. And that is not true. That is not the way Jesus did it. But he certainly took people where they were and he didn't make any, you know, Bones about who it was that he would meet. He would meet anybody. The woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, the, you know, all the disciples, you know, everybody. Jesus took them where they were as the starting point. But it's what happened afterwards. And in that continuous sort of relationship way, that that's when the changes really occurred. And that's the part that we can trust that to. Phil, did you have your hand up on that? You, you mentioned, you know, like, oh, I already know what you need. And, and telling, well, the thing about asking them what, what they're seeking is that it helps bring context. Because you already have the end, the end goal in mind of where yeah. they need to be. Sure. But knowing, knowing what they're seeking helps you contextualize how your, your approach on how to guide them to where they need to be. That's right. That's right. And that's, you know, I think there's a kind of an art to that. I think there's a little nuance to that. 
Because sometimes we can get a little manipulative where we kind of say, oh, and I know not only what you need, but I know how to get you to agree with me on what you need. All right. I mean, it's quite it's quite amazing how we can do that. So you have to kind of be mindful that still it's going to be the Holy Spirit doing this. I'm just I'm planting the seed. I might be saying the words, but it's not really about me. It's really about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You're always more successful if you try to get somebody to do something if it's their idea first. If not your idea of opposing one. Yeah, yeah. So, so as long as they come to the conclusion they need this, sure. it's a win. You forcing something on them is always a bad I know. So Jesus starts out with the question, what are you seeking? And so this sort of raises the specter for us in terms of kind of asking the questions, what are people today seeking in a relationship with Jesus? What are people today seeking in a church? Because the relevancy of that then would hit home for us, right? In terms of a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with the church. Where a lot of people today are is they want to have a relationship with Jesus and not have a relationship with the church. That kind of organized religion aspect of things, okay? And again, I kind of go back to this chart that if we think of that as this is where the seeking person is versus this is where the rejecting person is, that will make all the difference in the world in terms of what our response to that is. That may be where that person is right now. And it may be based on many things that are legitimate Maybe that person got wounded in the church by the church. Maybe that person was treated unfairly. Maybe people frowned at their kids when they misbehave. I don't know what it is. There could be any number of things that people say, okay, that's it. I'm done with the church. I'm done with that religion. I'm done with God. If I'm going to engage with that person, that's where that person is. But engaging with that person might, have the, might bear the fruit of changing maybe some of that. And maybe some of that person's experience, that negative experience with the church shifts because of their experience with you. See, maybe that's a whole different, whole different part of that. Okay. All right. Somebody had their hand up. Oh yeah. Debbie. I think also though, you have to be prepared that you know, they are, okay. So I'm talking about my kids. Yeah. I know they are seeking, but I'm not sure that they know where they are in that. Right. So when you're talking to them, it may be you get this much, mm -hmm. but it's a start and it's mm -hmm. a conversation. It is. Sometimes it's harder to do that as a parent than it would be somebody else doing that who's not a parent. Because the parent-child thing, especially for adult children, always comes off a little bit like, oh, okay, you're my mother, okay. And then it's sort of dismissed, right? But when you have a third party, i.e. a church or somebody in a church or even somebody that's related but not directly like a parent, that person can say exactly the same thing that you've been saying and the kid will take it as gospel truth because it came from the uncle or the aunt or somebody at the church or a coach or somebody, and it will totally echo whatever the parent said. And as a parent, then what you have to do is rejoice in that and not think that you're chopped liver, okay? Because that's what it's going to feel, that's what it's going to feel like sometimes. All right, well, so, so let's keep on going. So, it, 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 and here's just some thoughts in terms of what people today are seeking in a church. But what I want you to do, I want to go back to the back page because I want to make you aware of this survey that was done a couple of years ago. It's called, the, by the LCMS, it's a research survey that they did looking at, wondering, where are all the young people in the church? That was kind of the question in 2017. So they, they surveyed 1,800 LCMS congregations and uh, 2,046 millennial age participants. So at that time, it was, I think, the, the, the age range was about 19 to maybe 34, 35, somewhere in there. Okay, that was kind of the, the age range. The average age was 24, and twice as many women as men responded. So that sort of gives you a little sense of the, of the gender breakdown of that. The way that they define this is nominal 
LCMS affiliation is anybody that worship less than one time a month active, which is, this blows me away, that worshiping one time a month meant that you were active. But all that means is that, that that's what the, the categories that they use. That doesn't mean that we would agree with that. And then they interviewed 377 uh, people who left the LCMS. The, those numbers there in terms of the top five, these are the top five reasons why kids in that age group uh, stated that they left, okay? The number one reason was uh, feeling unwelcome in the desire to have the hard conversations about faith, life, and culture. Hard topics being dismissed or discounted left the uh, young person feeling uh, judged and isolated. So the example of hard topics were what was called first article topics. You know what, you know what the reference to first article is? The first article of the Apostles' Creed says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then if you go into Luther's meaning of the first article, it talks about uh, God as creator. And so among the questions, that the hard topics that people are today are asking is, are, in terms of God's creating of people, is it limited to male and female? That's a hard, that's a hard topic that's a first article topic that, that, that uh, many people in our society are struggling with. And then the church is struggling with how do you respond to that? Okay. So gender dysphoria and homosexuality and kind of all those questions fit into uh, first article topics. Okay. Uh, and, and of course, creation evolution. Did God even create it? Okay. So these are all things that are hard topics. And what the, what the, the folks who left the LCMS are saying is there wasn't anybody in the church that was willing to sit down with me and talk that through. That's what they're saying. Because these are hard things to talk about, right? I mean, you're sort of left with, gosh, I, do we have to pick between biblical integrity and compassion for people? And, and sometimes it comes down to that choice, and then what are you supposed to do with that? See, these are hard topics. And what they're saying is there wasn't anybody that was willing to have that conversation with me, or whenever I wanted to have that conversation, they just shut me down and said, here's three ver Bible verses, and you need to deal with it. Number two reason for leaving LCMS and other mainline denominations, but in particular uh, our denomination, the church's closed-minded stance on social issues. Women's ordination, homosexuality, and other LBGTQ issues, and abortion, on which it's very likely that the LCMS doctrinal position is not going to change. Okay? Now, some of us would say, thank goodness. Right? We would say that. But, but if I say that to the person who wants to talk about it, then I'm not going to be open to, to talking about it. Or if I'm open to talking about it, but only in the sense of, well, I'm going to pull out the catechism and the confessions and the Bible, and then I'll just say, you know, you need to get your act together. We're not talking about it. See, the, the dilemma here is in terms of how receptive I am to the idea that what is coming across as unreceptivity may in fact be seeking. Maybe I'm reading that wrong. Maybe it's seeking. But that seeking conversation is going to take me to some uncomfortable places as my conversations with Phil has taken me to uncomfortable places. Okay, I'm willing to do it. Okay? Because I know his parents and I'll just tell on him. That's what I'll do. Okay, number three reason, too few young people or little support for them. That's probably very true. That's true in a lot of smaller congregations that are aging. Okay, I'm working with a couple of churches, one in Fort Worth and one down in Waco, where that is, in fact, the case. The church is aging. It's not, grow, it's not bringing in uh, young families. It's not doing much to reach out to young families. And they're looking around and seeing maybe only gray hair or no hair. And they don't know what to do with it. Of course, I fit right in. See, that's okay. And number four, opposition to LCMS doctrinal beliefs, the baptism, communion, et cetera, things like that. Oh, another one is Jesus is the only way to heaven. That is a core belief of LCMS and Christianity. But that does not fly so well in the world that wants everybody to be included. That's a hard conversation. 
And then number five reason is preference for contemporary worship as opposed to traditional liturgical style. Okay. Which again, that's we're we're trying to address that here. So why did millennials stay active in LCMS? This is also a pertinent question. At least one person or a staff member was safe to talk about hard topics. See, it, it isn't, oh, I'm opposed to that belief and I'm leaving because I don't like that belief. I mean, for some people it would be that. But mostly the number one is that there was somebody safe to talk about this with. And what does safe mean? We're going to go there. We're gonna, I'm going I'm to go there and I'm going to figure out how to tolerate my discomfort with what we're talking about. And we're going to struggle together. Yikes. Wow. Okay. Second, feeling that the congregation has my best interests at heart as opposed to the institution's best interests. Do you know what that's talking about? Is the feeling that you really care about the person, not as much about the person's attendance and how that looks good on the rolls or the person's giving and how that helps our church survive. So that's not to say that the institution's needs are important. They are important, but it's a both and. And sometimes what they're saying here is that it feels like it's an either or. Okay. Feeling safe by being listened to and helped to learn spiritual discernment regarding what is real and trustworthy and not just simply to be a gatekeeper of knowledge. One of the things, one of the great things that Messiah does, and, and you have to really think of it this way, is confirmation camp. That's coming up this week. Okay. Confirmation camp is done by only a handful of churches in our whole synod. Everybody else does kind of the standard after school for two hours. And the pastor is standing up there and he's delivering this knowledge to eighth graders or seventh graders who are going, oh boy, you know, okay. And it's kind of a knowledge based thing. Well, confirmation camp certainly does that. And the number of hours that they spend in confirmation camp is actually greater than the number of hours that is spent after school on a Wednesday afternoon for two hours. And I know because that's what I always used to do. And the majority of us kind of were raised doing that. I went through it that way too. I thought, well, if I have to suffer, then these kids, they have to suffer too, right? But confirmation camp does a whole lot more. Because what happens is these kids are developing relationships not only with each other and those that are serving as uh, junior camp counselors, but also with the pastors and the DCEs and all those people. There are, there are hard topics being addressed there. Some of these very things that we're talking about here get addressed there. And there's a million questions that get asked, which is why I don't go to junior confirmation <laughs> camp. Okay. And sometimes in a, in a church body like ours, LCMS is very academically oriented. Knowledge is a big thing for us. Catechism is a big thing for us. Learning the faith, learning the tenets, learning the doctrines, all that stuff is a big deal. And the problem is you can turn that into an academic exercise. And we have the knowledge and you don't. And all we have to do is open your head up, pour it in, and then sew it back. And now we have a little Lutheran, right? And maybe we do, but maybe we don't have a person of faith. Okay. So that's, that's the concern there. And then the fifth one is feeling helped by navigating life's transitions. So something for you to just think about is what, what implications this would have for Messiah Luther church. And many of these we're already doing, we're addressing. Okay. But not to pat ourselves on the back because that age group still is the gap for us. It still is. And so in what way can each of us be one of those people that could actually um, engage in a hard topic conversation? Some things to think about. Let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for reminding us that the opportunities abound. But sometimes we just don't see the opportunity or we misread the, the situation. We think, oh, that person doesn't, doesn't want to hear. Or we think, oh, that person is not receptive. When in fact, that person is seeking and yearning, but really wants somebody to sit down and struggle and, and, and talk kind of authentically about kind of what that struggle is and how you get through it. So, Lord, I would just simply... Uh,
I would simply pray that you would give us opportunity to do that. And, and then as we do it, to drive us back into the word, to, to help us see that, boy, I, I really need to kind of strengthen my own walk with you and my own relationship with, with the scripture. Uh, comfort us by the fact that at the end of the day, it's you doing it. The Holy Spirit working in and through the word to, uh, to change people's hearts and lives. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be, be with all the uh, camp counselors and the kiddos going to a confirmation camp. And we do look forward to uh, next week when, uh, when the uh, eighth graders can uh, uh, reaffirm the promises that were made at their baptism in, in confirmation and come into full communicant membership of our church. Watch over us, uh, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.